You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our scripture this morning is John chapter 18, verse 28 through chapter 19 and verse 16. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves didn't enter the governor's headquarters so that, so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in the Aramaic Gabbatha. 
Now it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Well, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Take them out to John chapter 18, or excuse me, chapter 19, uh, and 18 and 19. We'll be in both those parts today. My name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to study the Gospel of John with you. So as we turn to this passage, sometimes you come to a passage where there is a repetition of the same word or the same idea or uh, phrases that are repeated over and over, and it kind of helps you pull together what the author is trying to communicate to us as we read that specific passage. Well, today we don't have any of that. We don't have any repetition of words and phrases and ideas. All we have really is to read the Bible as literature today. So as you would read a book, a work of fiction or a biography, whatever whatever it may be that you're reading literature, and you kind of feel your way through it and gut your way through it and kind of stuff subtly emerges off the pages that presents to you like what the message is, what the author's trying to get across to you. That's what we have for us today as we read this story that revolves around Pontius Pilate. You begin to see this man, Pontius Pilate, is addicted to control. He's a man who has to be in control, who has to be on top, who has to get the final word. And when you're that kind of person, you will very soon feel like your life is out of control. And then there's Jesus, who is completely poised, keeps his composure completely. He doesn't care at all about being in control. Instead, he is at rest. So first, we're going to look at Pilate. We're going to read this story that revolves around Pilate, just try to understand what's going on historically, culturally, socially, just everything in the background that helps us understand who this man is who has to have control. And then we're going to look at Jesus and how it applies to us. So that's the, that's the, that's the order of today. Pilate, Jesus, you and me. Cool? Let's look at Pontius Pilate, verse 28. The story begins, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, that's the high priest, they were just under trial in the middle of the night at his house, the Jewish high priest's house, they led him to the governor's headquarters. So Pilate, this is his home, his headquarters, he doesn't live in Judea, he of course lives in Rome more than likely, but he comes and stays in Judea at potentially explosive times like this very week, Passover week, and he comes and stays here in order to mitigate any potential of disaster, any potential of anything explosive explosive happening, like an uprising, for instance. It was early morning, John writes. Recall Jesus' arrest and initial trial with the high priest took place in the middle of the night, so now it's early morning. And they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now, Passover meal has already happened Thursday evening, the evening before this. This is Friday morning now. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread is next, and the Sabbath is next after that. And so this week, Passover is kind of just this catch-all term to describe all of the festivities that are going to be happening. Passover meal has already happened, then unleavened bread, and then Sabbath is going to happen after that. So they don't want to be unclean for any of these feasts that are going to be taking place. 
so they don't enter the house of a Gentile because that would make these men ceremonially unclean. They're prohibited from participating in those religious feasts if they defile themselves. So they meet outside in the courtyard. And now we get a good look at Pilate, the kind of man Pilate is, 29 to 30. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered you over to him. And so right away, what you need to see here is this is a power play. This is Pilate asserting himself and reminding them who's boss and who's in charge. The Jews, they already conducted their trial. They brought Jesus in under the presumption that he is guilty. And all they need Pilate to do is give the thumbs up to their verdict. Because you have to remember, the Jewish people at this time do not have the freedom to exact capital punishment. They cannot crucify anybody. They cannot enforce capital punishment. That's been taken away from them. That's Rome's responsibility alone. So they need Pilate to give the thumbs up so that Rome can do their job and put this man to death that they have convicted as guilty. But instead he says, what? Come and make your argument to me again. He makes them do it all over again. He completely sort of wipes the slate clean and just minimizes all the work they've done up to this point. This is who Pilate is, just a a man who is uh, demeaning, a man who is condescending. This is consistent with what what we know of Pilate historically. We know Pilate does not have a good relationship with the Jews. He is the imperial governor sent by Rome to be the the oppressor, the manager, make sure that nothing gets out of control. And he has to work with the Jewish governor, Herod the Great. They did not get along well because Pilate liked to continually remind everyone who was in charge. So he'd often demean the Jews. He'd even treat them brutally. There's been several instances recorded in history where a pilot would savagely and violently stomp out protests. So making the Jews jump through hoops to recognize his authority, it's consistent with what we know about this man historically. He's a man who has to have control and remind everybody that that's the case. And he maintains his demeaning tone as the story continues in verses 31 and 32. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fill the word that that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate, another power play here, he knows that they can't get what they want without his approval. They can't get capital punishment unless he gives the go ahead. So he reminds them who's in charge that they have to subject themselves to his authority. So Pilate, very clearly a man who uses his position to remind people who's really in charge. He gets the final word. This is his world, and we're all just players in it. Now, his self-assertion, it continues as we move through the story, as he shifts from the Jewish leaders to Jesus. He turns his attention from the Jewish leaders to Jesus. Verse 33, the story continues. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So he begins his own investigation because Obviously, he's skeptical of the accusations being brought against Jesus. I mean, these Jewish leaders, they want a revolutionary. They, they want an insurrectionist. They want to make Pilate's life and Rome's life harder and more difficult. So if that's the case being brought against this man, Jesus, why are they bringing him to me guilty? He knows there must be something else at play, more personal interests at stake in this situation. So he's trying to get to the bottom of it. Jesus replies in verse 34, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? 
He asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus wants to know why he's asking. Because how Jesus answers Pilate's question depends on why Pilate is asking. If Pilate is asking for personal interest, like he's genuinely curious about who Jesus is, well, that's obviously going to become a more personal, deeper conversation with Pilate. But if Pilate is asking merely to verify what the Jewish leaders have spoken, then that's a totally different conversation. So at this point in the story, what does Pilate really want? Is he really just trying to investigate the situation and get the facts straight, or is he curious about this man Jesus? And the answer is it's a little bit of both. A little bit of both. At least for a moment, it's a little bit of both. Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests, have delivered you over to me. So I'm not curious about you, but what have you done? What have you done? Tell me more about you. Tell me what's, what's going on here. It's a little bit of both. There's personal curiosity about Jesus, but he also wants to get the facts straight. So Jesus, what he does now, though, in his response is he is going to get the best of Pilate's curiosity. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom, it's not of this world. So what kind of king are you? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes and no. Not in the sense that you understand. My kingdom, it's not of this world. My methods are not of this world. I don't build a kingdom by sword, brick, and mortar, and power. I'm building a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that's not of this world. So Pilate obviously is pulled in deeper. He's a little bit intrigued in verse 37. Pilate says to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus now expounds on what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom he's ushering in and how he's doing it. He's bringing about a kingdom of truth, and he's doing it by means of bearing witness to the truth. God in flesh, Jesus, is born as a baby, enters into the world, the hostility, evil, and darkness of the world as a signpost that points to reality, the true reality, the kingdom of God. The main idea of all of John's gospel, just to remind you, is that Jesus invites us to live in the truth so that we truly live. Jesus wants us to live in the truth, his claims, his way of living, his design, his wisdom. He wants to invite us into the truth so that we might truly live. Now, truth, it is statements and facts, bullet points on a piece of paper, sure. But in John's gospel and in Jesus's way of life, truth is more than just agreement with a statement or a fact. Truth is I am going to build my life on that. And I am going to verify that truth through my own lived experience. Truth is not just what I think. Truth is, is just what I do. It controls my life. It's literally a reality that you partake in. So all of Jesus' life, from his words to his actions to his claims, it shows us what it means to live in the truth and truly live. That's the kind of king he is. He's not Caesar. He's not building a kingdom of this world on worldly wisdom and worldly might. He is ushering in a kingdom that invites us to live in the truth so that we truly live. 
And everyone who is sincerely seeking truth or who willfully subjects themselves to the truth will be drawn to Jesus' kingdom. That's what he says. Or in other words, only those who are looking for a kingdom not of this world will hear Jesus' voice above their other voices and give way to it and follow him. And so Pilate, is he open to the truth? Is he looking for a kingdom that's not of this world? Or is he more interested in building his own empire, a kingdom of this world where he's in control and he remains on top? Will Pilate give way? Verse 38, what is truth? Pilate responds and says, what is truth? And you can sort of hear the scorn in his voice, can't you? The dismissiveness of his tone. Pilate has no interest in the truth and bothering with truth. And the reason why is because if you want to be in control and remain on top, truth, man, it's a nuisance. Truth just bothers you because why? Because if you subscribe to a truth system, especially Jesus' truth system, then you are accountable. You don't get to do, do just whatever you want. You don't get to remain autonomous. You're not in control any longer. You can't just do whatever you please. You have to deal with moral obligation, obligation and subject yourself to a different vision for life on someone else's terms. Truth. Now, this is a great deterrent to following Jesus. Some of you here may be interested in Christianity. This is a great deterrent to turning to Jesus because you have to willfully subject yourself to his design which means he is in control of your choices, your body, your attitude, your money, your career. Every single thing in your life is now his jurisdiction. Jesus is king, not you. He's in control, not you. So what we do, or for those, uh, for those of us who are just addicted to control and need control, is we keep the illusion of control alive by suppressing the truth and mitigating the truth or twisting the truth to make it convenient to our own agenda. We insulate ourselves from the truth. That's what Pilate is thinking here. What? what do I have to do with truth? That's, I was listening to Jesus. I was curious what you were saying there for a moment. But when, once you introduce truth, it doesn't, it, it, it's not in harmony anymore with my need to control. So the story continues. And we see that Pilate that we all know, that we've known this whole story, he resurfaces. 38 through 40, continue with me. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release for you one man at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, or better translated, an insurrectionist. Here, Pilate, what he's doing is he assumes that between Jesus, who's obviously innocent, and Barabbas, who's obviously guilty, that these moral Jewish leaders are going to choose to release the innocent man, the obviously innocent man at this point. They, he assumes they're going to let him off the hook. But notice that he presents it in a really undermining way. He says, here's the king of the Jews. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? As if to say, this is your king. This is as good as you're going to get. This man right here from Nazareth, this carpenter, this false humiliated king, this is your king. He wants them to say yes. He wants to, it to be their choice so that they make the transaction and he can rub it in. See that? And surprisingly, what happens? They demand Barabbas. They release Barabbas. And so Pilate turns around in chapter 19. The story continues. And 
It says Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now this flogging isn't the same cat of nine tails that will literally brutalize a man's body before he heads to the Roman cross. That's a part of the crucifixion process. This here is just a public shaming, a slap on the wrist. It's, it's, a, it's being whipped. And so that's what he makes Jesus undergo, a standard whipping. And look at the story as it continues, verses two through five. The story uh, continues, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head and arraigned him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews, struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, see folks, see everybody, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, having been whipped, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, behold the man. So you can tell that Pilate at this point in the story, he knows Jesus is innocent. Jesus isn't getting let off the hook. So now he's, he's kind of changing a little bit, isn't he? He's trying to appease the Jews now. So he gives Jesus a slap on the wrist, a public shaming, thinking that that might be enough to just, to just minimize the outrage that's happening right now. Maybe he can turn down the volume of the situation just a little bit by making Jesus a public spectacle in this way. Maybe that'll be enough. Maybe then they'll let him go after he gets a slap on the wrist. But that's not what happens as we read verse 6. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Or in other words, Pilate states, you bring Jesus to me for trial. I give you my verdict. He's not innocent, but you don't accept my judgment. So you do it. You crucify him. But oh wait, you can't because you don't have that power. I have that power. So it's a power play. Again, the Pilate we know snaps back. Power play. But you can also tell sort of underneath the words that there's a struggle here of conscience that Pilate can't let go of the fact that this man is innocent. But still, even with that twinge of conscience, Pilate's still in control. Pilate's still asserting himself, putting them in his place. So let me do a quick review. A quick review of the rundown of the story so far. Pilate has demeaned the Jews repeatedly through power play after power play after power play, calling this man Jesus, whom they despise, their king. Then Pilate, he's convinced of Jesus' innocence. He knows Jesus is not guilty of insurrection. These leaders want to turn him in. Then he has a moment of weakness. Jesus intrigues him until he hears the mention of truth, and then he snaps back to his demeaning self. And then Pilate tries to free Jesus, but the Jews, they will not budge. And so they volley back and forth, back and forth, Fourth, Pilate trying to free Jesus, the Jews wanting him killed, yet he still advocates for Jesus' release. So here's my question for you as we just work our way through the nuances of this story. Do you feel like Pilate is still in control? Or do you think there's a sense here that the control is slipping away, that things are getting out of hand, and even the confidence that he wears on his sleeve at the beginning of the story, you can see it sort of dissolving a little bit, can't you, as his conscience gets in the way of his decision-making process here. I think Pilate feels like things are a little out of control. And that's what's confirmed as we keep on reading. Verses 7 and 8. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard that statement, this statement, he was even more afraid. So he was afraid before. 
there's, there's fear in his heart all the while in this process as things, as things got out of hand. And now the fear takes over. The fear is consuming. Why is that? Why is Pilate so afraid at hearing them say, he has to die, he's made himself out to be the son of God? Because the tables have turned and the Jews have him. They've got him. They found his weakness and they've exploited it because his job, Pilate's job, Pontius Pilate's job above all else is to accommodate the Jewish people's customs so they remain civil. Pilate has an obligation to uphold their law. And they have just announced that Jesus has broken the law, not by being just an insurrectionist, but by claiming to be divine. So Jesus is guilty by their law. And that's not all though. So that's one thing. They have him now. They've cornered him. They've exposed him. But Pilate has also just heard that Jesus claims to be divine. And now, if you're a cultured Roman, which Pontius Pilate certainly is, your superstition has just been triggered. Because Romans believe that if you angered the gods, if you messed with the divine, you would face their wrath. And if this man, Jesus, is sent from the gods, if he is from above, then Pilate may be in the direct path of divine judgment. Now, everything that Jesus has said before, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm ushering in and bearing witness to a truth that is not of this world. All of that's beginning to take on a new light for Pilate. He realizes that this man is divine. So on one hand, Pilate's been cornered because he has to accommodate the demands of the Jewish people. But if he does, he places himself in the pathway of divine wrath. You can tell why he's afraid, and you can tell that things are now completely out of control. He's not in control anymore. So verse 9, he entered the house, the headquarters again, and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. <laughs> Just what someone who, who needs control loves, right? Silence. See, now Pilate has no solutions, no way forward, no direction. Without Jesus speaking, no word said, there's no way to manipulate the situation and get back in control. Pilate now is at the mercy of the situation. And so Pilate says to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So listen to this. Before Pilate stands a man who is believed to be divine, and he tells Pilate that whatever amount of authority he has, that Pilate has, it's on loan. It's not actually Pilate's. There's no promise of it continuing. He also tells Pilate, secondly, that he's guilty of sin, right? He says that you're guilty of sin, but with a, with a caveat that, Pilate, you're just a cog in a machine. You're just a smaller part of a process that you didn't even initiate because the one who turned me over is guilty of the greater sin. So you see, this man who loves control, he's told that his authority is an illusion, he's guilty of sin, and he's not as big as he thinks he is. And just when Pilate couldn't feel any more helpless, verse 12, from, the, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They got him. You can't argue with that. 
and there's no way out of this now. He has to submit himself to the forces at play. He's no longer in control. His conscience won't let him release this man. He's confronted with the divine, his authority. It's just a cog in a machine. The Jews have leverage on him. As his sense of control sinks, he begins to grasp for it like a man drowning. He's going down. But true to form, as he's going down, he's going down swinging. He's at least going to take the Jews down with him. Verses 13 through 16, finishing the story here. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. So he takes his seat of authority. Now it was the day of preparation on the Passover, of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. The Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? See, he's getting his last jabs in. This is your king, as good as you're going to get it. The chief priests answers, They retaliate, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So Pilate, he might not be as powerful as he thinks he is, but at least he takes the Jewish leaders down with him because as his control slips away, at least they compromise and say with their own words, we have no king but Caesar. No one wins. Nobody wins. No one's on top at this point. Let's think about control from what we see in this story as we walk with Jesus. Control feels so great when it's working, doesn't it? It's the best. But when the illusion fades, you will feel so fragile, won't you? And, when, and you can respond by turning away from the illusion and live in reality where Jesus is king, or you can, like Pilate, deny reality and fight at all costs to keep the illusion of control. Let me tell you this, though. If you choose not to live in the reality that Jesus is king, if you choose to build a life where you are in control, insulate yourself from all truth so that you remain in charge. You will find yourself opposing God and you will find yourself mistreating your neighbor. That's what's going to happen. Summarize the Old Testament, God's Old Testament moral law in two statements. Love God, love neighbor. You want to know what God's passionate about and what he wants from you and demands from you? Love him and love neighbor. And if you need to be in control, you'll neither. You'll do neither. You'll fail to do either. The reason why control is opposition to God and why it cuts you off from loving God is because the need for control communicates to God that we are a better God than him. We think we know what's best and God's going to get it wrong. And so we must be in control. Now, here's the thing. God tells us we must love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, complete. If you want a love relationship with God, you have to give him all of you. He's, he wants wholehearted devotion, which means you must trust him. You can't withhold certain things from him. You can't remain in charge and get final say on certain compartments of your life. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, love God with all of your being, which requires trust which requires that you relinquish final say. But if you don't, you will never then have that loving relationship with him. You won't know his love in your life. So do you know how to identify whether you've released control or not? You're here and you want to know whether or not you are that control freak. You're addicted to control. You want to know? How anxious are you? How's that going for you? 
Are you continually anxious to pit in your stomach, continually mind racing about outcomes to things, continually stressed about how you can, you know, hedge things and play things out so you get what you want, you know? How anxious are you? Because when we seek control, we are attempting to oversee our lives without omnipotence, all power, without omniscience, all knowing, without omnipresence, being everywhere at any time. Omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, those are capacities that God and God alone has. That's why he can be in control and he's not anxious at all. And that's why when you try to take control, you're completely anxious because you're trying to be what only God can be. And you're just not built for that. You don't have that capacity. And by seeking control, here's the other result. You will never love your neighbor because just like Pontius Pilate, you will demean others when they threaten your agenda or you will find a way to use people as instruments to pursue your agenda. That's what happens when you remain on top and fight for control. People become chess pieces in your game of life. So control, it feels so nice, doesn't it? I mean, when it's going good, it's going great. But when the, when the cracks begin to occur, it's awful. Now, here's the great irony of control. The great irony of control is we think that if we have control, we can guarantee outcomes and be happy. All of us have outcomes in mind that we want for our life, and we're married to those outcomes. And we literally, every decision you make in your life is so that you can secure an outcome that you think will make you happy. But if control, if control comes at the cost of loving God and loving neighbor, which it will, the irony is you will never be happy because you were made by God, for God, for the sake of others. You see that? You were created by God for the purpose of knowing God, having love relationship with him, and from the overflow of that love relationship being a blessing to others. That's human existence right there, according to God. If you want to know just like your purpose in life, love God, love neighbor, have such a rich connection with him, wholehearted openness to him, that he fills you up abundantly so you give yourself to others. You can't do that if you need control. It's never going to happen. So it's only by releasing control and living in trust that we welcome God's love into our lives and become totally free to love others. So here's the question. Wouldn't it be better to simply release control and live in the kingdom of Jesus? Isn't that just better to let him be king? Isn't it better just to let God be God instead of you trying to be God? So today, guys, God is calling you to release control and trust him. The alternative to Pontius Pilate, the alternative to needing control is to live in trust, which is what Jesus models for us. So let's turn our attention to Jesus and look at three specific scenes really quickly. Three specific scenes I want to bring to your attention. Scene one, Pilate's courtyard. Chapter 18, 28 through 32, that's where it's at. Jesus is led, he's led to the courtyard, and he hears the Jews say, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death referring to their, of course, their prohibition against executing capital punishment. So what Jesus is hearing in the courtyard in scene one here is that we need Rome's approval to kill this man. And what's Rome's way of killing a man? Crucifixion. And that's why John writes in verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus said before multiple times in John's gospel, I will be lifted up. I will be exalted and draw all men to himself, suggesting, of course, that he knows he will be crucified on a Roman cross. And here it is playing out before his eyes as he's led there. He's, it's not his, he didn't go there. It wasn't his choice. He was led there. 
He's passive in this whole situation, and he hears it playing out, and he is at rest. Right? Completely poised. He's witnessing the plan unfolding. You see that? He knows the plan. He knows what God's will is, and he's completely fine with it unfolding. Total trust, total composure. Scene two, Pilate's headquarters, not the courtyard, his home. In chapter 18, 33 through 37, Jesus states that his kingdom, it's not of this world. Therefore, his methods, they're not of this world. And he says this in verse 36, my kingdom, it's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, trying to get back control that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom, it's not of this world. So what's Jesus's method? What is Jesus's method for ushering in his kingdom? In verse 37, he says, it's to bear witness to the truth. That means Jesus came, what's Jesus's purpose in life? To point people back to the Father. It's not about him. He knew his purpose. Listen to this. Jesus was not confused at all about what he was on earth to do. He submitted himself to the process, submitted himself to the Father's agenda. You know, the kingdoms of the world that Jesus is talking about compete for control. They use the most brutal means to get it and keep it. The world fights and claws to establish itself. And Jesus, as the alternative kingdom and king, he's at rest. Because he knows his purpose. He knows who'd bring it about. He doesn't need to fight for himself. Scene 3, chapter 19, Jesus is flogged. He's presented before the Jews. The Jews demand that he be crucified. Pilate, he has to do now, do so now under threat of being an enemy of Caesar. And we read this in verse 9. You remember, we've read it once. He entered his, court, his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say a word. He wouldn't speak up for himself. Completely passive to the situation. Why would Jesus refuse to defend himself? After all, Pilate, his conscience is getting the best of him. His conscience is nagging him. Pilate knows this man is innocent. If Jesus wanted to play his cards right and get out of this horrible situation, he could do it. But he speaks not a word. Why? Because Isaiah 53, 7 says this. Anticipating the future Messiah, the prophet writes, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus knows the plan. Jesus knows God's will. And he's embracing it, stepping into it so deeply, so truly and sincerely, that he literally is embracing the role of this suffering servant, this final Passover lamb, who is completely okay being led to the slaughter, opening not his mouth. That's what we're supposed to see here. Jesus is stepping into God's will, completely at rest in it. What's the secret behind Jesus' composure? Not freaking out, not needing control, not needing to defend himself and get the final word. He was at rest in God's plan. He was at rest in God's purpose. So look, who here wants to stop being a control freak, stop having a life that's just characterized by anxiety? Who here wants to just be at rest and be poised? And glorify God as you bear witness to the truth. Stop using people. Stop trying to play God in your own life. That's not working for you. Who here, want, who here wants a life of peace that's marked by peace because of trust? Then you have to know God's word. 
I mean, I, sometimes when you come up here and you preach and you say stuff like that, that's so simple and basic, you feel silly because it's not profound and mind-boggling. But guys, if you want to move through life like Jesus, conformed to him, poised under composure, bearing witness to the truth, glorifying God in your life, you have to know God's word. You have to know his will. You have to know what he wants for you. So here's the question you have to wrestle with. Are you living in God's word? Are you having a relationship with God through his word? Are you letting your imagination soak in God's design and vision for your life? Are you letting God's expectations very clearly revealed in his word become your expectations? Are you letting his commands be your imperative? Are you letting what he's passionate about be your mode of operation? You, you're not going to get that unless you're living in God's word. Jesus knew God's story. He knew God's expectations. He knew what God's will is. He steps into it. He sees it playing out. He's at rest because this is how it's supposed to go, right? He doesn't need to be in control. So today you have a choice. You can either be Pontius Pilate or you can become like Jesus. That's the choice before you and I today. And so I want to close now just motivating you to make the right choice. I want to draw your attention back to chapter 18, verses 38 through 40. After Pilate says to him, what is truth? He went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find in him no guilt. I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Here's the irony in this scene. Jesus is not guilty at all of insurrection. <laughs> Barabbas is. And Jesus is condemned while Barabbas is released. Further, ironically, Barabbas, he earned crucifixion. But as fair and just as that Barabbas goes to the Roman cross, Jesus took his place. Do you see what's emerging here? Do you see what I'm seeing here? We are Barabbas. Guilty, but released. Released from death that we earned and replaced by Jesus and given his innocence. That's the gospel, friends. How can a good and holy God remain good and holy while letting the guilty Barabbas, me, you, go unpunished? How is that going to be possible? Only if Jesus takes our place. Literally, only if Jesus takes our place, and he does. He willfully does. And when you understand <clears throat> that Jesus trusted the Father so deeply and sincerely for the sake of your salvation for the sake of bringing you to the Father, when you actually encounter that, believe that, it does something in you. It moves you to release all outcomes, to release final word, to release control, to be okay with whatever's going to happen because if Jesus died for me while I was weak and in sin, I have no reason not to trust him now. If Jesus ushers in a kingdom, not like the world, violence and ego and brutality and manipulation, but ushers in a kingdom by bearing witness to the truth, inviting me into reality itself instead of the illusion, then I can trust him. 
And so can you trust God and give him control only if you believe that Jesus' perfect trust saved you? So here's my final word. Release outcomes. Release final word. Release getting your way. Release superiority. Release control and be at rest. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Anyone tired of the anxious life? Come to me, all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You will find rest for your souls. Rest. Rest. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you and we want your rest. We give to you our anxiety. We give to you our stress. We give to you our worry and concern. We give it to you, God, because it's not for us to handle. This is not your will for our life. Your will for our life is to take your yoke and burden upon us. And your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You're never anxious, Jesus, not once. You're always at peace. You're always confident. You're always assured in the Father's love and in the Father's will. Give us, Lord, by your Spirit, a great and profound peace and rest in you. In your name we pray, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.